the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. This morning we started a new teaching series entitled Frontline Sundays, a series designed to be a helpful reminder right at the start of the year about what it means to be followers of Jesus in every context of our lives, whether gathered, in our times together on a Sunday and during the week in our small groups, or scattered as we go about our day-to-day lives on our front lines. As a counterpoint to that series, we are over six Sunday afternoons taking a look at Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series of talks entitled Back Behind the Front Line. The intention of this series is to look at some of the important foundational principles that shape our effectiveness as whole life disciples. Paul's first letter to Timothy does that through presenting a clear and holistic vision of the church. It's a reminder that what we believe to be true about God and about the gospel inevitably shapes how we live. It's a reminder that our integrity and accountability both inside and outside the church are very clear markers as to whether or not we are truly committed to Christ in each and every area of our lives, both individually and corporately, whether scattered or gathered. Now we've split this afternoon series into six parts, with each section focusing on a single chapter of Paul's letter. And whilst that's clearly the most straightforward way to divide the letter, it's important that we pay close attention to another more intentional structure within Paul's writing that is somewhat obscured by the later edition of chapter divisions. The letter splits into four sections, with the majority of Paul's instructions to Timothy being contained within the central two. The remaining sections that bookend the central portion both start with clear references to the issues that are negatively affecting the witness and life of the church community in Ephesus. The first section, chapter 1, turns the spotlight on legalism. And the final section, the second part of chapter 6, focuses on materialism and we'll get to explore the effects of those two isms and the ways that they manifest themselves in the life of the church in the central two sections of the letter. But there's something more to notice since right at the very heart of Paul's writing we discover what I think is the letter's key verse and that is chapter 3 verse 16. Paul writes talking about Christ Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. So, we can either think about the theme of Paul's writing working towards and away from this central verse, or perhaps more helpfully, we can see them collapsing in on it, since what we think about Christ is central to how we live our lives. And putting Christ at the centre of any and every circumstance will provide the best means to deal with the issues, such as the ones that Paul describes in his letter. Now, if you'd like to explore something more of the structure of 1 Timothy, the Bible Project have produced a really helpful video that discusses the themes of the letter. There is also an infographic that you can view and print, which is also very helpful to just get a sense of the letter as a whole. Well, our focus for this afternoon is going to centre on chapter 1. 
So if you're listening to this on the podcast, it's probably a good moment for you to just stop and get your Bible out, read 1 Timothy chapter 1, the entirety from verse 1 to verse 20. Now, since this is the first part of the series, it's always helpful to set the letter into its particular context. We're going to do that by using the analogy of a play. We're going to explore the players, the place, and the plot. First, let's take a look at the two main individuals that the letter references, Paul and Timothy. Firstly, then, let's start with Paul. The letter starts with an introduction from the author himself. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle, or literally one sent, of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now within the letter there are several autobiographical passages that are scattered throughout, all of which helpfully pick up on two distinct though linked aspects of Paul's life and ministry. Firstly, his conversion, the realisation of the truth of God's salvation and of his need to accept it, and secondly, of his commission to make Jesus known through his words and actions. Take a look, if you will, at uh, verses 12 to 16 of chapter 1. These verses link very directly to the story of Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, the story that we find in Acts chapter 9. Look at verse 13. Paul describes himself as a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. And then looking back in hindsight, writing this letter as he does towards the end of his life, somewhere around 63-65 AD, Paul has this assessment of his actions before encountering Christ. And it's very blunt, it's very forthright. Twice, in verses 15 and 16 of 1 Timothy 1, he describes himself as the worst of sinners. And yet, amazingly, despite having been involved in persecuting the fledgling church, his life was turned around through the amazing grace and mercy and patience of God. He writes this, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And Paul clearly delights in knowing God as his saviour. And as we will discover throughout the letter, Paul stops the flow of his writing several times to simply express his praise to God. Towards the end of this chapter, chapter 1, he writes this, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. And then secondly, Paul writes something about his commission, what he has been tasked to do. God's call upon our lives as those who have experienced forgiveness through the person and work of Christ's death and resurrection leads inevitably towards a life that is centred upon God and upon the mission of the kingdom of God. Paul recognises that the good news message of Christ is something God has entrusted to him. We find that in verse 11. And that realisation for him results in a particular passion to tell those from non-Jewish backgrounds about God's universal rescue plan for humanity. And it's that passion which lies behind Paul's particular desire to help Timothy sort out the problems. 
Problems that are currently besetting the church he helped to plant in Ephesus. Since what a church believes will shape how it lives, and how a church lives will have a direct impact upon its effectiveness to be salt and light in the multiplicity of the front lines where it has influence. Now I can't say that I'm particularly minded to make New Year's resolutions. Neither this year nor any year come to that. But I do think that when we start the year, we are presented with an ideal opportunity to reflect. Last Sunday morning we looked together at Psalm 130, a song that encourages us to look back and to look around and to look forward. And I think it takes a certain amount of bravery to lay our lives open to God and to ask him where he wants to take us during these next weeks and months and years. Paul was driven by his passion to see people reached with the gospel. It was a passion that was fueled by his own personal experience of God's work in his life. So I think the question for us as we set out on the year is what is our passion? What is your passion? What is my passion? Or maybe, given the context of the letter of course, what is our passion as a church, as a community? So that's something about Paul, uh, the first member of our cast. But then there's Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy, my true son in the faith, in verse 2 of chapter 1. And again, if we want to flesh out the details of the story, we have to turn to Luke's account of the early church in Acts. Timothy first appears in Acts 16, in a scene that is set in Lystra in modern-day Turkey. There we read this. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Now, most commentators agree that Paul's reference uh, to Timothy as being my son is most likely there as an acknowledgement that Timothy's own personal faith journey was greatly influenced by the preaching and the teaching of Paul. Commending Timothy to the church in Philippi in a letter that was written a few years earlier than the one that we have in front of us, we read this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 22. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Later in the story, we find Timothy accompanying Paul on a series of journeys, as well as being sent on ahead by Paul as an envoy to at least two churches in both Corinth and Thessalonica. Paul refers to Timothy as a co-worker in the letter that he sends to Rome, and several of the New Testament letters that Paul writes are sent jointly from both Paul and Timothy. And it's clear from the many references to Timothy that are scattered throughout the New Testament that his particular ministry, his passion, is focused on seeking to ensure the effectiveness of the witness of the churches that he's involved with. He demonstrates genuine pastoral concern for the well-being of those he serves, not simply as an end in and of itself, but more importantly, so that the good news of the transforming gospel of Christ can be seen by those looking in. His concern is that the reputation of Christ is being clearly reflected through the character and motives of God's people. And I don't find it at all surprising that Timothy is in need of encouragement for this task. 
Mention is sometimes made of a supposed timidity within Timothy's makeup and of his apparent physical weakness as well. And yet those references, I think, need to be set in the context of the wider picture of someone who is wholeheartedly engaged in following Christ. Someone who is prepared to be even imprisoned for his faith, as the writer to the Hebrews reveals. We find that in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Now, I said earlier that I'm not really one for making New Year's resolutions, but I'm going to make an exception. I'm going to suggest that there is one resolution that I'd like to make, and that maybe it's one that all of us might want to adopt. And it's simply this. Be more encouraging. In Acts chapter 11, verse 23, we read about another of Paul's co-workers, Barnabas. He, upon arriving in Antioch, was struck by what God was doing amongst his people there. And Luke records the story. Acts 11, verse 23. When Barnabas arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And I think we would all benefit from that kind of encouragement. So that's a brief resume of our two main cast members, Paul and Timothy. But what about the setting itself? Well, the action takes place within the church at Ephesus. As Paul writes this letter, Timothy is based in Ephesus. We know that from verse 3. Timothy has been sent there by Paul in order to help sort out particular problems that are causing dispute and that in turn are harming the witness of the church amongst the community and also the reputation of Christ. And whilst the letter is primarily written to his trusted friend, it is also written to be heard by the whole church, since the tense of the word you at the close of the letter becomes plural. The church in Ephesus was established by Paul at least a decade prior to the writing of 1 Timothy. Once again, it's Luke's writing in Acts that helps her to tell us the story. It tells us the story of the inception of the church in chapter 19. Paul remained in Ephesus for just over two years, which for him was quite a long time and quite unusual. And at a final meeting with the leaders of the church just before he went, we find this in the following chapter, chapter 20. Paul warns them to be on the lookout for false teaching. He says this, Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 31. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, some will arrive and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. And it's the emergence of this exact issue that results in Paul sending Timothy to Ephesus. The other source that we have to help us understand something of what was going on in the church in Ephesus is the letter that Paul writes to them only a couple of years before sending Timothy the letter entitled Ephesians. And whilst it's most likely that Ephesians is more of a circular letter, not one whose message is meant exclusively for the single church in Ephesus, we know that Paul's focus in the last half of the letter is all about how to live out the good news of the gospel in each and every context. 
We also have John's writing as well. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 4, John commends the church for many things, and then he says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So maybe this church, though continuing in service of Christ in various ways, were no longer marked by a particular passion for him. Other things were obscuring the gospel. And that appears to be the setting into which Paul writes. Here is a community where the gospel was no longer taking centre stage, where all kinds of internal issues were affecting not only the well-being of those in the congregation, but were in turn causing harm to the reputation of the church in the world. And therefore, of course, the reputation of Christ. Which leaves us with a question. I wonder if there are things in our lives, whether as individuals or maybe corporately as a church family together, that are obscuring the gospel. Are there issues that we have promoted to being far more important than they ought to be? Have we, as John writes in Revelation 2, lost our first love? So finally, let's consider something of the plot. Now, any of you who own a house will know only too well that over a period of time, a house falls steadily into disrepair. Cracks appear in the brickwork, telltale signs of damp can be seen on ceilings and chimney breasts, windows become difficult to open and close. Gradually, things deteriorate. And unless remedial action is taken, those structural issues will only become more serious over time. But not all structural issues are easy to spot. Sometimes it's only when someone with an expert eye or an impartial view takes a look is the true extent of the damage seen. And that's just as true in the life of any church community as it is in the life of a dwelling. It's clear that the church at Ephesus had fallen into some state of disrepair. The church was slowly becoming irrelevant, facing in on itself rather than facing out into the world. By promoting secondary issues of arcane theology to centre stage, they'd lost sight of their passion for the gospel. At the beginning, and also at the end of the letter, the causes of deterioration are revealed. There were those within the church teaching false or different doctrines, just as Paul had warned them in Acts chapter 20. Look again at the beginning part of chapter 1 from verses 3 to 7. This is what Paul writes. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Both the opening section of chapter 1 and the corresponding closing section of chapter 6 identify the nature of the false teaching. Here there was a devotion to myth. Mere speculation based on anecdote and rumour or imagination without any sure basis in truth. As well as an unhealthy interest in genealogies. Perhaps based on a desire to compare familiar ancestry and traditions to assess whether or not 
a particular individual or individuals was qualified for leadership within the church. And this preoccupation was leading towards legalism, with an emphasis on what we do rather on what Christ has done. And one likely reason as to why this teaching was unchallenged was because those who were promoting this line of thinking were well-versed in Scripture. However, they had majored on minors and lost their first love. Paul says that God's work is one of love. It's not a work that is promoted by meaningless talk, but rather through meaningful action. The resultant main activity within the church is outlined towards the end of the letter. Paul, speaking about the false teachers, has this to say in the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrel about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. So what's the antidote? What's Paul's advice to his trusted co-worker Timothy? Well, firstly, Paul says this, refocus on the good news. Paul states right at the start of this early section of his letter that the good news of Jesus brings salvation and hope and it delivers grace, mercy and peace. We see that in verse 2. Furthermore, he reminds Timothy that God's work isn't promoted by clever argument, but by faith. He says that in verse 4. God's salvation isn't earned through a great obedience to the law. He makes that point in verse 7. Or through seeking some supposed superior knowledge. We discover that in the end of the letter in chapter 6, verse 20. And anything that covers up or obscures the message the message of the good news of the gospel, the message of love, needs to be sidelined. The good news of God's work must be central. Secondly, not only is Timothy instructed to tell the church to refocus on the good news, he also reminds Timothy to refocus on love. We see that in verse 5. It's important to notice from the very early verses of chapter 1 that Paul doesn't simply seek to correct the false teaching in the church in isolation. That, in and of itself, isn't the end goal. Paul looks further ahead towards a restoration of relationships between those who are arguing and squabbling about secondary issues. If the Christians in Ephesus are going to be effective as a church both gathered and scattered, then the hallmark of their faith has to be love. And the quality of that love needs to be one that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. The call to show Christ's love and to know how to live it out in the everyday becomes the central theme of the letter. And the first place that such a love needs to be clearly seen is within the church itself. Paul writes... In the verse that comes immediately before the central verse of the letter that we discussed earlier, he writes this, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15, You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. 
And my hope is and my prayer is that as we journey together into this year, that the centrality of the good news of Christ and our love for God and for one another and for everyone that we meet on our front lines will be the twin motivators that inspire us to continue to share the story and live the life. I'd like to close with a couple of verses that we find in Ephesians chapter 3. This is what Paul writes. This is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus and his prayer for us as well as Christ's followers. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how high and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God.